0: There is a story that has been around for some time about a broadcast during Easter 1916. It has many versions. This is one of them. It is pieced together from eyewitness reports and hearsay and has no more claim on the truth than any other version. I'm not chasing facts. I don't know what exactly happened. What I do know is that at the heart of this story is the triumph of a beautiful can-do attitude. A dog of bravery that was fuelled by a desire for an independent and fairer Ireland. A powerful combination, made even sweeter by the fact that here were young techie nerds playing around with wires and transmitters. I'm going to start the story with Paula O'Kelly, an elegant lady who has first-hand memories of one of the central characters, Fergus O'Kelly. I met her in her house in hosts. What a beautiful like house. Oh, gosh, look at your
1: garden, isn't it gorgeous? Yes. You could sit here all day watching those birds. I do, and I have more feeders up there, too. And when I'm talking to you, I'll probably be looking <laughs> because something different comes in, you know. I said,
0: Paula was Fergus's daughter-in-law, and I asked her what he was
1: like. He was a lovely person. I. I I really admired him. Very quiet when I knew him. In his later years, well, I was told when he was younger, he had plenty to say for himself, and uh, and would he tell you about it, his role in it in nineteen sixteen? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yes, he did. Not that he he boasted about it or anything, but. Uh, It was certainly very much part of his life growing up. Perhaps the last year before he died, he came and stayed here in this house. And I asked him, describe what you were doing at Easter in 1916. And, well, he started off by saying they came in from Larkfield House which was the Plunkett's home, into Liberty Hall.
0: That was Easter Monday, the 24th of April, 1916. But I will start the story the Friday before, on the evening of Good Friday, the 21st of April, 1916.
2: Tragic motoring affair in Kerry. A wrong turn. A sensation was caused in Tralee today by the news of a tragic motor accident at Killorglan, which resulted in the deaths of three men unknown. Details to hand indicate that a party travelling in a limerick registered motor car from Killarney to Tralee stopped en route at Kelorglan for a supply of petrol. On leaving the town, the chauffeur inquired as to the Tralee road. He was told to take the first turn left. He unfortunately obeyed the direction to the strict letter and turned the car down towards Ballycassan Quay, which is locally regarded as a Boreen, His informant was under the impression that he would continue until meeting the main road and overlook the Boreen. The car, which was occupied by three passengers and the chauffeur, sped down the by-road and plunged into the River Lane, which at that point is of great depth. In some unexplained fashion, the driver extracted himself from the steering wheel and got himself safely ashore, but the other occupants of the car were not so fortunate. Contradictory rumours are afloat as to the identity of the unfortunate passengers. The chauffeur, it is alleged, disclaiming all knowledge of who they were. The chauffeur gave the alarm to the people living in the vicinity and dragging operations immediately started for the recovery of the bodies. Easter, Sunday 23rd of April, the Sunday Independent.
0: So who were these three men and what were they doing? The newspaper report is alluding to some kind of intrigue. They were on a mission of some sort. Their story is held in the Kerry County Museum in Tralee, where Sarah O'Farrell is the collections officer.
3: So the mission or the idea of it was that there were a number of men, Con Keating, Dennis Daly, Charles Monaghan, Colm O'Loughlin and Donal Sheehan. They travelled down from Dublin on the train to Killarney, and there they were picked up by two drivers and the plan then was to drive from Killarney out to Carseveen and that route would take them through Killarglan. They don't appear to have been that familiar with the route that they were going to take and they had agreed that they would drive in tandem and um, they didn't want to be too close together because they didn't want to draw too much attention to themselves. The RIC were on relatively high alert at this point that didn't work, that didn't happen, they lost each other. The first car seems to have driven through Clorglan, no bother, pulled in a little bit after Clorglan, waiting for the other car to catch up. The second car, driven by Tom McInerney, with Con Keating, Donal Sheehan, and uh, Charles Monaghan in it, they got lost in Clorgland. Uh They took a wrong turn, and they ended up going out. It was quite a dark and foggy night, and they took a wrong turn and they ended up at the Ballykissan pier. Now, the Ballykissan pier looks like a bridge from one side, but it's not. It, it ends very shortly after it begins and you're right onto the pier and into the River Lawn. The bodies of Con Keating and Donald Sheehan were found the next morning, but it actually took another six months before Manhan's body was found.
0: This was a tragic accident, the first of many young lives lost in 1916. But we still don't know what these three men were doing in Kerry. Helen O'Carroll is a curator of the Kerry County Museum.
4: But very quickly, I think that story of the drowning of the of the three men became part and parcel of the the tradition of that area, you know, and especially because Con Keating and the other men would have been considered one of the first casualties of the rising that weekend as stories began to be pieced together you know from what was happening in caloric what happened here in tralee with roger casement being arrested when like we we're so used to instant communication and things happening people are tweeting it as it's happening and all the rest of it but then it, it was a very confused picture for quite a while did people know what they were up to oh the local people yeah oh i don't think so I don't think they I don't think they knew at the time what they were up to. You know, when the when the car went in, you know. I guess it was just a question of piecing all of that together afterwards. And I suppose when uh when Con Keating's name became known as one of the the dead, I guess then they would have been able to, to work it out because he had been trained as a wireless operator and he was from Carcevine. It's a bit little bit further away from Kenorgland, but you know. Everyone knows everyone in Kerry eventually, anyway, you know. So they would have worked it out, I suppose, but it would have taken a, taken a while. It wouldn't have been an instant knowledge, I don't think. It did
0: take a while for the whole story to come together. La Loughlin was a passenger in the first car, the one that didn't take the wrong turn. He was in charge of the mission and was acting under the orders of Joseph Mary Plunkett to travel to Carisavine and, as he says in his radio interview in 1946...
5: Orders were clear enough, enter wireless school, said to be unguarded by the way, dismantle transmitters and receivers, remove two portable sets, Con Keating knew all about them, sprinkle petrol around, light up and light out for Tralee.
0: As we now know, that is not what happened. When well, Colm lost sight of a second car, he was forced to turn back. And it was not until some time later that he found out what happened to his
5: colleagues. They took the ford and I took the high road. They were drowned and I came safe.
0: This group of men, young men, Con Keating was only twenty one, were under orders to rob a transmitter and receiver for the rebellion. Do we have any idea what might have happened if they had not died in a car crash?
3: As a mission, it seems to have suffered from some organisational problems. Um, Despite this tragic accident, it's not clear that they would have been successful even without the accident happening. Um, The plan to steal the equipment from the wireless school, the wireless school was vacant at night There wasn't anyone guarding it. However, it was only 100 metres from an RIC station. Um, And that RIC station being relatively close to Valencia, they would have been on a relatively high alert, not only for Irish rebels, but maybe anyone else involved in World War I, like Germans or anything like that. The idea, once they got the equipment, to bring it back to Tralee and then to reset it up, there's been some question as to whether or not they would have been able to do so. I will say that the proprietor of the school, Morris Fitzgerald speaking, I think it was in the 50s, said he thought that Con Keating would have managed it, but some others have cast some doubt on that. Also, the truly end of the operation was supposed to be organised by Con Collins, and he had gotten arrested uh, during the day on Good Friday. So that part probably would have, would have fallen apart even if they had managed to come back with the equipment. There is then the question as to what purpose where they getting the equipment for. So there's three main theories. The most kind of prominent theory seems to be that they wish to set up communication with the odd itself. Deeply flawed plan, The odd had no radio on board. Um, also, the odd had actually already left Truly Bay by the time the lads went out to steal the equipment. Um, another option is that they were going to try and send false messages out to British warships and try and lure them away from the coast in order to facilitate the odd in landing arms. So again, not a great plan. And the third then will be to broadcast the story of the rising more generally. Um, so they're kind of the, the three theories. And in regards to those
0: three theories as historians and curators, do you have a, I don't know if I could say an opinion on it, but a kind of a, a feeling on what...
4: It's so easy, you know, you have your 2020 vision in hindsight about what was somebody's intention or this wouldn't have worked because of that and all the rest of it. They were going to do something with the radio. You know, I think that's really part of Lads, we got a, you know, wireless station down in Kerry. Let's do something with it. Let's send a guy who knows what he's doing down, who's from the area and all of that. Um, you never know what they would have improvised. And I think that's all part of... Rebellions, wars, whatever, any plan has a huge amount of improvisation to it. So I guess um, if they had been successful in, in robbing the stuff, taking it bringing it back to Tralee, they probably would have come up with some plan. I'm going to sidetrack
0: a little here. This was an attempt to rob communication equipment to assist with a rebellion. But this was a hundred years ago. What systems of communication did we actually have then? I went to the Hurdy Gurdy Radio Museum in the Martello Tower in Hoth, which claims, with justification, to be the birthplace of communication. I talked with Pat Herbert, who runs the museum, and Tony Bratnock, a Morse code expert. Hello.
5: Tony, is it? It only is and It was very early days of communications by wireless and whatever. And McConaughey was doing a lot of experimenting. And I suppose this is how Joseph Plunkett got the idea. Long before, I suppose, the rising was even planned, he had the interest in wireless and whatever.
0: Eyewitness Report, Bureau of Military History. Mrs Geraldine Dillon, sister of Joseph Mary Plunkett. The 26th of the 2nd, 1950. Joe spent the rest of the time till Easter, whether in bed or out of it, on military plans for the Rising, and on wireless plans. He was a wireless expert. He'd followed Marconi's experiments from the beginning, and had made model sets which worked. Some people seemed to think that the purpose of the wireless was to get in touch with the German arms ship. It was really to get the news of the Rising transmitted to the world, especially to America. They knew that their own transmitter was not powerful enough, So they decided to send Conn to capture the wireless in Cares Possibly they were to use it first where it was, and then to move it. So if the Kerry mission had succeeded, what would they have hoped to achieve? It was supposed,
5: this was supposed to happen, right? But it didn't happen, of course, as you know, because uh, things fell asunder. The idea was they would cut the wires out of Dublin, down to, to, to Valencia, they would have their own system when they'd set up in, in, in Sackville Street and down to to there To, to be a runner from Carter to the to the post office in, in Kinmare to Rosalie Rice, who would then have sent a message, encoded a message to the right the Ring Brothers. The, the the Ring Brothers there were, were operated the cable system and Mars system which was the, the, it was the days before wireless, as we know it today. So they, what, everything was communicated by Morse. And the cable went from Belincia Island across to, to Harts content north of Newfoundland for the American continent. And they got all their, sent through all the messages from there. But, but they were double agents, if you like. They, they, they were part of the Republican Brotherhood as well, and that was their first thing. The other was just a day job.
0: Of course, this was an official British communication system and the only one available. There was no other means for the Irish revolutionaries to get their message out to the world.
5: I suppose, yeah, of course, everything was British controlled and they were all part of the British system at that time, you know? The whole idea was to get the message to America first because they they were depending on America for funds. The old Fenians were there, led by John Devoy. Right, They were all in America raising funds for this rising and whatever and that's where they got their finances from. So it was important that the, the message got there first, before the British had it.
0: The cable station in Valencia, which was operated by the Ring family, was one of the most important communication centres of the British Empire during the First World War. The Ring brothers that Pat is talking about were, as he said, double agents, and did indeed pass coded messages to America on behalf of the Republican movement. Their role in 1916 is of enormous significance.
5: I t- did I tell you that story about how the British found out about it? When, when the, 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 the British couldn't understand how the news got to America before it went to North County Dublin, if you like, you know, and they were mesmerized about all this. And it, 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 they, got their, they got their answer, I gather, in a pub in America, because there was an Irishman there on the run and somebody put the question to him, you know, how in the name of God did the news of the rise and get through to America before it got through to North County Dublin? And and he said, oh, that was quite simple. He said, that come from a fishing village in the west of Ireland. They put two and two together and they knew then there was only one place it could have come from. So the rest of the Ring Brothers.
0: But I'm going to leave the story of the Ring Brothers there because what they were doing was sending messages by cable. What this story is about is wireless or broadcast. That is sending a message out to the world with no receiver in mind. And in 1916, that technology was only in its infancy. And of course,
6: We've got to differentiate between radio and landline. That would have been a landline point-to-point where you needed the cables from from one point to another. But when the early experiments in the latter part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century was how do you get a signal from point-to-point without wires? Well, the thing is... They generated what today we would call uh, simple interference, and basically that's what it was. They, they used spark transmitters, and later on, if you're interested, I can show you the spark transmitter over there. There was a lot of experimentation, and we're called radio amateurs today uh, because we carry on what I like to think is the tradition of the the true spirit or the early spirit of uh, experimentation, but because of the security risks uh, all uh, radio equipment would have been uh, confiscated and, uh, you know, I suppose it would have been a, a, a major criminal offence to be in possession. And this happened again during the Second World War. All the amateur radio stations, all the equipment had to be surrendered because it was a big security risk. People think of radio as voice and that, but really it wasn't until the after the war and the 20s that voice really came into its own. Although Pat will tell you about the, the New York transmission later on, but really for communications, we still had Morse code.
5: Broadcasting as we know it is by wireless, and that dates back to, to 1906, Christmas night 1906. And uh, it was a, guy, a Canadian by the name of Fessingdon who was a famous uh, uh, wireless man, of course, as well. What he did, it, it, it was kind of unofficial in a way. It was like our own early broadcast. It was unofficial because it, he went out nilly-willy over the airways and he played some music, and of course, and Holy Night, I think, was one of them. And on a violin as well. He played on a violin. And there was only a few ships at sea and whatever that picked it up. And, uh, but that's generally recognised as the first unofficial broadcast. The first official broadcast took place the following year, in 1907, and that was our famous Lady Forrest, again, who came to the tower here in 1903. So, And, of course, in 1907, he also discovered the audium valve that amplified sound, and that changed everything. And, of course, what he did... He, he, he set up his operation in the Opera House in New York and he put speakers around in different places in the city. And that became official because there was their press and everybody was there to, to receive it or recognise it or listen to it or whatever. And uh, some years later, I think he, he set up a, a broadcast from, the, uh, from the, the Eiffel Tower in Paris. I think it went down about 600 miles down across France.
0: We were just at the beginning of experimenting with means of communicating to the world. Ireland in 1916 was not using voice to communicate with, but as Tony calls it, radio interference with spark transmitters.
6: But the spark transmitter just generated all types of radio frequencies. So it was very, very uh, primitive equipment. But what it was is, we've got to remember, this was digital. This was digital. It was switching. Digital is two modes. Either the signal is there or it's not. And this is what Morse code was. So you may call it primitive, but it was very far-reaching and very, you know, for its day, it was just a brilliant, brilliant invention. And you can see this. This is actually moving back and forth and interrupting. So that's how the, the, the spark. What it is is general interference and that's what was going out in those early days
0: was this similar to what was used
4: during the 1916
0: this, this would have been it
6: because this was state-of-the-art, the technology. Pat said there were uh, there was some uh, voice transmissions in the early part of the century, but the, the day-to-day transmission, uh, you know, communications was done, point-to-point uh, communications was done with spark transmitters, so this would have been what would have been used
4: exactly. Yeah, even though it looks like Neanderthal te- technology to us now, to our present eye, is just is f- from the Stone Age, partially. But then, of course, it was as up to date as anything, you know. And uh, these were very modern men, in a way, young men, dealing with very modern technology. And that we can use this technology uh, in the here and now and create our own. Our own history, our own tradition. And I suppose every generation tries to use the technology or the communications technology that's there, and I guess that's the, the point. That you know, you can bring it up to the Arab Spring and and to any revolution that that any time in history that has tried to use communication. Yeah, and that this is all part of that. You know, the bravery of Con Keating, Charles Monaghan,
0: and Donald Sheehan in their efforts towards assisting the 1916 Rising, was officially acknowledged by the Irish government in 1941.
4: Where we are at the moment is in our museum storeroom, which is where the reserve collection is kept. Um, everything in here is in numbered boxes and all its own location and that. So this is, for the moment, this is where Con Keating's medal and his belt are. and We're getting them ready for an exhibition. Do you want to show me the medal, actually? Yeah, sure. So um, this would be the medal for people involved in the, the 1916 Rising Medal.
3: Okay, so on this side here, we've got what's supposed to be a depiction of Cú Chulainn in, in his death. Um, it's kind of death scene of Cú Chulainn, And then on the reverse, uh, we have the Ngáscá, so that's Easter week, 1916. The name Con is also inscribed on it. It's relatively unusual for the names to have been inscribed on it, but with some of the people who were already dead by 1941 when these were given out, they were inscribed. So it's likely that this is an official inscription on it, done at the time of of awarding it. They
4: they think this was the belt that he was wearing in the car the day that they went off the pier in in Balikassan. And uh, like a lot of these things, you know, became relics very quickly. So it is very likely that this was his belt. Like the, the uh, front fender of that car, the bumper of it, is in Kilmainham. Um, it, was, it was taken out, taken from Balikassan and, uh, and then given to the museum up in Kilmainham. Um, the, these things became quite the sacred relics, you know, as, as to tell their story, I suppose, you know. Yeah, I mean, the story would have been kept alive, obviously, in the family. I mean, this was a man who died in the 1916 Rising. This is a huge part of anyone's family story. Um, And they were very, very proud of him and, uh, and that, and very keen that this stuff go on display as well and that Con Keating's contribution to the Rising would be acknowledged. A story like this becomes very much a story that gets retold without probing too much as to as to the details or the reasons why or wherefore or whatever or, or the or the what ifs and that you know this is the story as it happened, but I think very much part of their family story this man who who died in in action even if no one was firing at him or anything like that they were on a mission to go and and uh, and do vital work as part of the rising so that was the kerry's
0: side of the story but it is not the end of the story the failure to capture the equipment did not deter the volunteers from their efforts they still hope to create their own system of communication we return now to fergus o'kelly this 20 year old who committed himself to the volunteer movement taking the same oath as his contemporary con keating did
3: Uh, So, Oglina Heron, Irish Volunteers, I, the undersigned, desire to be enrolled in the Irish Volunteers, formed to secure and maintain the rights and liberties common to all the people of Ireland without distinction of creed, class or politics. Name, Conqueting, and then the date as well, October 1914. They were so young. Fergus was arrested for his part in
0: 1916 and sent to prison when he was still only a boy.
1: He spent his 21st birthday in Wormwood Scrubs and Michael Collins was at the, the birthday party with the photograph of the group of the, on the balcony in the jail of their celebrations. And they said uh, his mother had sent him the shirt he was wearing in the picture or something. He also kept a diary when he was in Wormwood Scrubs. And at the beginning, it was written in Irish, which he would have been pretty fluent at. And in pencil also. And he kept that till he uh, was released at the end of July.
7: Tuesday, May 30th, 1916. In two days, I'll be 21 and then there will be another man in Stafford Jail. I hope he'll have a little more go in him than the boy that's here now, or he won't be worth much. I always thought I'd have a great bust the day I came of age, but it don't look as if I would somehow. And it will be Ascension Thursday too. Hope we'll have Mass anyway, though I suppose not. Everyone is very quiet tonight, even G-Landing. Must be the effects of the football and the concert. Thursday, 1st of June. 1916. Mass at 9.15. Pretty wet in the morning, and so we had very little exercise. Today the commandant told us we would have our doors open all night, as well as during the day, so now we are all right anyway. After tea, the crowd collected in my room. I gave a birthday party, and we passed the time pleasantly enough, talking and smoking. Twenty-one
0: today. He considered himself a boy, but it did not deter him from fulfilling the mission even after the death of his colleagues. Another group of young men, who've been experimenting with technology, and led now by Fergus O'Kelly Kelly, are to continue on this story.
7: I joined the Irish Volunteers in November 1913 at the Rotunda meeting. I was attached to the Signalling Company and received instructions in Morse, Semaphore, etc. I had a working knowledge from the instruction I received in the Signalling Coy and from the home study of wireless. In March and April 1916, I was closely in touch with Joseph and Jack Plunkett and was frequently at their house in Larkfield. At this time, the refugees from England were in the old mill building at Larkfield under the control of George Plunkett. Mick Collins was constantly at the house with Joseph Plunkett and up to the time of the rising acted as one of his personal staff. Some wireless apparatus was assembled by the Plunkets. The manufacture of a transmitting set was out of the question, but a receiving apparatus was assembled the principal items being a magnetic detector formed of a number of soft iron wires, formed into an endless belt and passing around two pulleys rotated by a gramophone motor. Attempts were also made with crystals as valves, but crystal reception was rather new at the time. On Holy Thursday 1916, Joseph Plunkett discussed who would go away immediately and sent Con Keating and David Burke to Kerry. Their mission was to obtain wireless apparatus from the wireless station at Valencia, Kerry, as is now well known, the car in which Con Keating was travelling took a wrong road and was driven into the sea at Caharsiveen, three occupants being drowned.
1: This statement was compiled from personal dictation, which was taken down in longhand by the investigating officer and partly from notes written by the witness. Mr. O'Kelly is a man of education and intelligence. He impressed me as being a straightforward, Conscientious type, anxious only to give a true picture of events as he saw them. And that would be my opinion too, typical of him. At
7: noon on Easter Monday, George Plunkett's Kimmage Garrison was mobilised at Liberty Hall, and I was then with Jack Plunkett. We each had a motorcycle.
1: Can you ride a motorbike? I don't know, I haven't tried, but I'm sure I could. Take this one then and report to Beresford Place at 11 o'clock. The time was about 10 o'clock in the morning of Easter Monday, 1916. The place was Larkfield House. I received my orders as above and was put on a not too new 3.5 horsepower Triumph, shown how to start and stop it and set off.
7: The company was marched off in fours by General Plunkett up Abbey Street to O'Connell Street and then towards Nelson's Pillar along the post office side of O'Connell Street close to the footpath. As the company drew abreast of the post office General Plunkett gave the orders Halt Left turn Charge The company having turned left formed two lines looked a little blank at the order Charge and immediately General Plunkett shouted Take the post office! At that The men broke ranks and rushed forward in through the main entrance to the post office. Shortly afterwards, the public who were in the office and the staff came running out in great excitement. Windows were broken out and barricaded, and the rising was on. Jack Plunkett and myself entered the yard by the side door and left our motorcycles in the yard where they remained. A little later, I was called aside by Joseph Plunkett and instructed to take a few men and take possession of the wireless school and Reese's shop and do everything possible to get the transmitting plant and receiving apparatus into working order. I took about six men. One was Sean O'Connor, an electrician and a member of the Kimmage Garrison from London. Another was Arthur Shields, the well-known Abbey actor, and I also had David Burke as operator. I entered Rees's building through the Abbey Street door and went up the stairs to the top flat where the caretaker lived, an elderly woman named Brown. I advised her to leave and she did so. The wireless room was sealed by the British military. I broke the seals and David Burke and I entered. The apparatus was disconnected and had been out of use since the start of the war. Quite a lot of work had to be done to put it into working order. We went out to the roof and found that the aerial had been taken down, but the poles had been left lying in the valley of the roof. We immediately set about making a new aerial and setting the poles upright to carry it. Sean McGarry obtained the necessary wire from the General Electric Coy in Trinity Street.
6: As I say, this is, what, 17 feet as compared to 30 feet that they were using in 1960 so. oh, that's that one. How does it look? Stable enough? Yeah, I'll put a second one on it anyway, just to be sure, to be sure.
0: Pretty light. We are up on the roof of what is now the Grand Central on O'Connell Street, a beautiful building overlooking the city of Dublin the chaotic noise of the streets around us. We are joined by Morse code experts and amateur radio guys Joe Gilfoyle, Tony Bratnock and Nick Mullen. Also on the roof is electrician Paul Kavanagh, who has been rigging radios since he was 16, and journalist and activist Edmund Hefey, who, at 21, is the editor of the University Times. On this location in 1916, Fergus O'Kelly and his colleagues set about making history. It's
8: not the same building, because that building was destroyed in 1916. So this is the replacement building, but the same location.
6: Uh, Well, they were looking out. They were actually in one of the apartments, because they said they were looking out. The windows were overlooking Abbey Street, so the antenna would have been here, all right. Yeah, there were
8: snipers in McBurney's and you can see, if you go over to the edge there, you can see the windows that they were probably sniping from.
7: On seeing that the roof of the wireless school was dominated by the dome of the Dublin Bread Company, the DBC building, and would be under fire from across the river, I sent word to the post office that the DBC and adjacent buildings would have to be occupied, or else we would have no security for the wireless school. Captain Weaver's 2nd Battalion, was then sent over with a company and they occupied the block from Abbey Street to the river. These were of great help in keeping up constant sniping against these enemy positions, which were firing at us while we erected the aerial and made the necessary connections. Unfortunately, soon after his arrival, Captain Weaver was fatally shot while on the roof. The heavy sniping eventually forced us to stop work on the roof until dark. The aerial was completed during the dark hours of Monday night. Sean O'Connor was of the greatest value in carrying out this work.
0: They were well aware of the dangers involved in the mission. As were all of the volunteers, young men and women who willingly risked their lives for
9: their ideal of an independent Ireland. Before nightfall, two fellows came across from Reese Chambers and asked for two girls to go back there to prepare meals as they had no girl at all. Mrs English immediately volunteered and I said I would go with her. When we heard the fellow say, remember now, it's a death trap, my heart fell into my boots but I did not pretend anything. We went and tidied up the place. I remember some of the people. They were Captain Paddy McGrath, now dead, who was at one time works manager of the Irish press, Captain Weirer and Sean McGarry. The wireless was an operation upstairs. John O'Connor, blimey of the London Irish, was at it all night with Fergus Kelly. There was a good lot of shooting that night and we were all taking cover. Mrs English was giving out the rosary and we were answering it.
2: Blimey was engaged on the job of climbing up the wireless mast to fix some wires and he was being sniped at all the time, but he fixed it. How he had the pluck to carry on and how he was not riddled beats me. Eyewitness report of Liam Tannum from the Bureau of Military History.
9: My memory tells me that some of the British occupied McBurney's roof that night because the boys were always looking over there. At daybreak, things got quiet and Mrs. English cooked a breakfast for the men. She gave them chops and we drank tea. Signed, Onion Irene, date 18th of September 1953, Bureau of Military History, Eyewitness Report.
7: Meanwhile, David Burke had tackled the connecting up of the transmitting plant and putting it into commission. The apparatus was a standard one and a half kilowatts ship set and so was familiar to Burke as a Marconi operator. It was found that the electric power from the Pigeon House station was still on and so the motor converter supplying the power for operating the set was available.
6: That's lovely, the antenna's working grand.
8: What Tony's using over there is CW, which is Morse code. They didn't have the technology for speech, so... um they were using Morse code on these low frequencies, HF bands. And that's exactly what Tony's reenacting over there at the moment. And that's that's what I know. And that's how they got the communication out. And uh, what he's doing in a peacetime situation is easy compared to a wartime situation where these guys were fighting a battle and trying to get vital information across using... What would now be very old technology but it was, it was uh, very advanced for its time to be able to send signals into, into radio waves into the air without having to use cables. Army of the Irish Republic, Dublin Command Date 25th April 1916 Headquarters to the officer in charge, Reese and DBC That's the Dublin Bread Company. The main purpose of your post is to protect our wireless station. Its secondary purpose is to observe Lower Abbey Street and Lower O'Connell Street. Commandeer in the DBC whatever food and utensils you require. Make sure of a plentiful supply of water wherever your men are. Break all glass in windows of the room occupied by you for fighting purposes. Establish a connection between your forces in the DBC and in Rees Building. Be sure that the stairways leading immediately to your rooms are well barricaded. We have a post in the house at the corner of Bachelor's Walk in the Hotel Metropole in the Imperial Hotel in the General Post Office. The directions from which you are likely to be attacked are from the Custom House or from the far side of the river, De Lear Street or Westmoreland Street. We believe that there we believe there is a sniper in McBurney's on the far side of the river. James Connolly, Commandant General. So young and I, I wouldn't have the courage to do anything like that. Now maybe they were young and foolish
7: because to go up on a roof with the British Army, trained snipers taking pot shots at you, you know, it's just crazy. On reporting to HQ that the transmitting apparatus was operating, a message was sent over by James Connolly, commanding the Dublin area for broadcast
6: transmission.
4: So this message went out 99 years ago.
6: Yeah, 99 years ago. From this location. From this location, okay. So here we are, I'm going to read it out first. An Irish Republic declared in Dublin today...
7: As far as I can remember, the first message announced the proclaiming of the Irish Republic and the taking over of Dublin City by the Republican Army. A later message stated that the British troops had attacked and had been repulsed, and that the positions were still held by the Republican forces.
1: He said, um, David Burke, who was with us, who had his Marconi certificate, was our official off operator. But he said, I want to retain for myself the privilege of transmitting this first communique of the rising, broadcasting to the world the proclamation of the Irish Republic. I felt very proud. I was 20 years old then, he he writes.
7: As the receiving apparatus could not be got to operate correctly, it was not possible to get in direct touch with any station or ship, but the message was sent out on the normal commercial wavelength in the hope that some ship would receive it and relay it as interesting news.
0: That was key. They took a risk. They were not transmitting to any one receiver. Maybe it was a well-calculated risk, maybe not, but they took the chance to send out a message to the world, and that is what made this message so unique. it all
5: backfired. That's how it became a broadcast, you see. Otherwise, it would have been a transmission, a transmission down to a fixed point in Karasai and the message go across to America. But because they had nowhere to transmit to when they set up, unknown to themselves at the time, they went out nilly-willy over the airwaves, so it actually became a broadcast. So that's how it was the first broadcast in Ireland. And, and, of course, an old friend of horse here, Conor Cruz O'Brien, he was asked when he the when he was the minister for Posts and Telegraphs, he was asked about the wireless station and he, he, he didn't want to know about it. He, he regarded it as a child of a rat because it was born out of wedlock. That was Conor Cruz's reply to it, you know? So everything was... It, because it was unofficial, it never happened, if you like. Yes, it's part of our story. Oh, it is, of course.
2: First I've ever heard of wartime pirate radio in Ireland. Yeah.
6: You know, when you think back of what was going on here 99 years ago, you know, here we are today, and I've just sent the same message. You know, know, absolute
2: chaos breaking out around, and all I wanted was a couple of listeners to pick up the message and you know get the word through. To see, like, as you said, they didn't know if it would work. 36 hours under gunfire on a roof, it's a lot of bravery. You know? And again, these guys weren't trained soldiers or anything. These were just doing their part, young fellas, yeah.
0: Did the message go anywhere?
5: According to Geraldine Plunkett-Dillon in her book, All in the Blood, right? And she was, don't forget, she was across from the GPO and the hotel on her honeymoon. She's seen everything that went on. And she said it went, it, two stations in Bulgaria picked it up. And the German station of Norn, it was a military station in the UEN, isn't it, Norn? And she also said there was a, 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 a German, a tramp steamer, she called it, picked it up out in the North Atlantic somewhere. And I think the, the Helga picked it up at Dunlaeri or whatever. That's where what it was apparently picked up. Now the people that did the, the broadcast, didn't know that, because they had no receiving aerial. They only had a transmitting aerial up. They couldn't get any messages back.
2: Irish revolt breaks out in Dublin. Rebels seize many parts of town. Headlines of New York paper of Tuesday, April 25th, 1916.
0: I asked Edmund what he thought as a 21-year-old. Did he think these men did it because they had no choice? Or do we underestimate the fire in young people to fight for a cause?
8: Oh, no, I definitely think people underestimate the fire in young people in the sense that um, there was anything compelling them to do this other than, the, than that they cared. Comparing it to the, the marriage equality referendum, as in the thousands of students who went, went out canvassing, when there are social issues or issues of significance that young people can play a role in, like something as simple as knocking on a door and talking to people, having the ability to set up, you know, an antenna on a building on O'Connell Street. It's about having the ability and being able to see that you can affect change.
0: So how did it all end?
7: On the Wednesday, shellfire from the Helga began to affect the position. A message was brought to me from the post office signed Captain Breen, instructing us to evacuate the position. I could not understand this message, but was assured by the bearer that it was authentic and we should evacuate the premises and retire to the post office. I called the volunteers on the DBC and other buildings down to Reese's and explained that we were going to the post office but would probably be back. There was serious disinclination to leave, but eventually we all went across to the post office. There was heavy fire down the street from O'Connell Bridge as each man ran across. When all were safely across, I crossed over and reported to James Connolly stating that I had received an order to come back to the GPO. He said, I know, now you can go back to Reese's." I saw Joseph Plunkett to inform him of the progress of events and then assembled the men for a return to Reese's building. The firing was much heavier when going back and two men were missing when we got to Reese's. In view of the general deterioration of the position and the heavy fire from the Helga, it was decided to attempt to remove the apparatus to the post office. Some parts of it were extremely heavy and bringing them down the narrow stairs was very difficult.
0: Liam Daly was one of the volunteers involved in the broadcast. In his interview in 1956, he recounts how the equipment was taken out.
5: I thought that the handiest method of conveyance for this apparatus would be an upturned table, and Captain Breen agreed.
0: So six of the men carried the table, legs upwards. The equipment was placed inside, covered with a tablecloth. Slowly they trooped across Lower Abbey Street to Prince's Street. Liam thought that perhaps the reason why they got across was that the authorities thought the table was a carrier for the dead or wounded to be brought to the GPO.
5: The heavy firing that was going on at the time stopped. Then Ernie Noonan, in charge of Princess Street Gate, with unconscious humour, wanted us to bring back the table to where it belonged but we wisely refused and made the return dash to our post under very heavy fire.
7: Before all the parts could be removed, however, the position became quite untenable and we had to abandon it finally. This, I believe, was on Wednesday evening. The journey back to the post office was very difficult, as both Abbey Street and Marlborough Street were under fire and two men were seriously wounded at the corner of Abbey Street and Marlborough Street. In the post office, we endeavoured to erect an aerial across the yard. On the Thursday, the fires began and incendiary bombs began to drop on the roof. The fires took a good grip and I abandoned wireless work and was operating a fire hose instead. The sight of O'Connell Street burning from end to end, the deserted street with its very abandoned tram, its tangle of tramway wires, the lancers' dead horses, is not easy to forget, even fifty years on. Signed, Fergus O'Kelly. Date, 8th of February, 1950. Eyewitness Report, Bureau of Military History.
0: Broadcasting Arising is a curious broadcast production funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Produced and narrated by Patricia Baker. Sound mix and edit by Jerry Horn, Contact Studio. Colm O'Loughlin and Liam Daly's interviews were taken from They Remember 1916 and are courtesy of E Libraries and Archives. Eyewitness reports are courtesy of the Bureau of Military History. Geraldine Dillon was read by Rachel Dowling, Fergus O'Kelly by Sam McGovern, and Ony Norena, Jacinta Sheeran. The newspaper reports and the eyewitness
2: report of Liam Tannham was read by David Harleigh.